after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Speeches that shaped the modern world is a collection of powerful speeches that were delivered during the 20th century. There are some recurring themes in this book. Politics and diplomacy, war and peace, freedom and justice, civil rights and human rights. Now, what these speeches all have in common is a powerful, persuasive rhetoric. In the book, there are heroes and villains of the 20th century. Joseph Stalin stands side by side with Mahatma Gandhi, and they are alongside Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Fidel Castro, and Margaret Thatcher. And who could forget our very own Mancunian, Emmeline Pankhurst, with her speech, from 1913 titled, Freedom or Death. Now the chapter that we're reading this morning, the, the text that, Rup that Rupert just read to us, contains a speech by the living God. This is the longest speech in the Bible from God since Mount Sinai, that's significant. And this is not just a speech that shaped the world of its time. It is the speech that is shaping the history of the world 
and all eternity. It is the speech that right now continues to shape the history of the world and will shape the, the history of eternity. That is how important it is. Now, if you have your own Bible, and by the way, if you're a regular here at the church, please bring your own Bible because we've only got about 90 odd to hand out. Bring your Bible, and if you like to write notes and highlight in your Bible, then let me suggest that 2 Samuel 7 should be underlined, annotated, asterisked, and highlighted with fluorescent yellow or whatever color you prefer. It is that important. This chapter is vital if we're to understand our Bibles. The plot line of the Bible, I would dare to say, doesn't actually join up without this chapter. And it's even more important for us that this chapter helps us to grasp the magnitude of what God is doing in history. And for us to understand the character of our God who we learn is absolutely, unshakably faithful to his promises, no matter what. And if we will listen, we will also learn and see Jesus in powerful new ways, perhaps as we've never seen him before. But it is a speech, and therefore I'm aware that there isn't much action to report in this sermon this morning. Unlike recent chapters in the life of David, our series, uh, they've been full of drama and conflict. This day, nobody gets their head cut off. You know, nobody goes to touch an Ark of the Covenant and dies on the spot. There are no animals sacrificed. There's no fighting. Nobody hits a giant in the forehead with a stone. It's just made up of words. But... I hope you'll find it's a banquet of words, because words change the world, don't they? Now, just a little bit about context. Last week, we thought about chapter 6 in 2 Samuel, which is all about this glorious golden box, piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark represented God's presence with his people in the middle of history. And David, the king, wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem to centralize the worship with God, with the rule of the king in the new capital city. But we learned a few things about God there, and one or two of them were a bit surprising. We learned that God is dangerous. He's not safe or tame. But we also learned alongside that that God is really good. God is dangerous, God is good, and therefore we need a solution if we Sinful human beings are to live in the presence of such a God. Now, 2 Samuel 7 begins with verse 1. Have a look at it there. It says, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Now, we could quickly skip over this, but actually it seems a bit odd because if you turn to the very next chapter, chapter 8, David's fighting again and there's war and conflict and he has to go and to lead his armies against the Philistines. So how come chapter 7 verse 1 says, after the uh, king was settled and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies? And most scholars uh, agree that actually what's going on here is that the writer is skillfully playing with the narrative sequence so that chapter 7 is actually much later than chapter 8 in history. And the reason that it's written like this isn't chronology, but pedagogy. This is to teach us things because we've learned and thought all about the ark and God's presence in chapter 6. And now the ark has been brought to Jerusalem, but it's still living in a tent. And here is David, some years later, having defeated his enemies, thinking something needs to be done about the accommodation of the ark. We need to upgrade its accommodation. 
And uh, what we find here is three powerful lessons, I think, that we can learn from this passage and take away. Uh, they are our projects, God's promises, and the greatest privilege. Our projects, God's promises, and the greatest privilege. Projects, promises, and privilege. Firstly, our projects, verses 1 to 7. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Now what's going on here? This um, text emphasizes that David is the king. He's been chosen by God. He's been established as the king the ruler of the nation and he's got his enemies are subjugated so the extent of the nation is the greatest it's ever been the peace they're enjoying is the most phenomenal it's ever been God has given him rest and now he's living in a palace and in those times cedar was the height of opulence and luxury you might think cedar yes cedar it's really a luxury item we're not talking ikea but David isn't comfortable because he perceives a situation which he regards as a problem. He thinks it's an anomaly. It's this. I'm going to just emphasize the words as they are in the original language. I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. I'm in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent now at this point we encounter Nathan the prophet for the first time he will become a, a big character in the story he's one of the great spiritual leaders of the nation and at this moment Nathan replies in verse 3 actually from his instincts he isn't speaking as a prophet at this point he's just speaking kind of from the heart shooting from the hip he says you know David I think you're right actually something must be done about this go ahead go for it your instincts are good and then we get the first surprise of the chapter, which is this. God says, no. No. God speaks. Verse 4. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Now, when you read this phrase, the word of the Lord came to somebody, it is extremely weighty. This is literally the words of God himself, not to be edited or neglected or overlooked in any way. Now, most of the prophetic books of the Bible, if you go and look at you know, all those little books at the end of the Old Testament, you'll see they often start with this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Obadiah. The word of the Lord came to Amos and it's God's words coming and Nathan's job like that of every true prophet is simply to report what God has said. He doesn't edit it, he doesn't varnish it, he simply reports it and you see in verse 17 Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So we're talking here about revelation not opinion. This is God revealing his mind to human beings and God says no David you are not the one to do this for me whatever you think the situation is God sees it differently 
And he gives some reasons. In verse 5, he says, let's just pause for a moment, shall we? And get our sense of proportion right. Are you the one to build me a house? Verse 6, he points out, he's always moved with his people. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. God says, all the years I've been protecting and guiding and rescuing this nation without needing a house. I like living in the middle of them. Why would you think to build me one now? And then in verse 7, I think this is maybe a little bit sharper, but it's still gracious. Basically, God says, David, I haven't asked for one. Look at verse 7. Whenever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? David, I haven't asked for one. And who are you to think that I need human help? Perhaps David has overstepped his line a bit here, uh, but God is gracious to him. Now, the main point of these first seven verses is this. God sets the agenda, not David. God sets the agenda for our lives, not us. The most important thing in our lives is that we learn how to respond rightly to the living God. But we need to be aware that our instincts and our intuitions are often wrong and sometimes they mislead us. Even ones that we think are good, like in this case. David thought that he'd read the situation correctly and that the best thing he could do was to honor God by building a splendid house or a temple for God. Wrong. But how often have Christians devised projects or made big life decisions that seemed to be honoring God, but they weren't? Even well-intentioned projects. David had to understand God is the one to tell us what he requires. If he didn't ask for a cedar palace or temple, why should David imagine that such a thing would please him? Now let me ask, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you taking pains to ensure that the agenda of your life is set by God and not by you? Are you taking pains to ensure that God is setting the agenda in your life? And you say, well, how would I know? There are two aspects given in this passage, God's word and God's community. Look again, God's word. David has to listen carefully to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He has to attend to the revelation. And for us, that's more than just what, what David has. It's the entire Bible we have, the revelation of God. We have to attend to that, study it, learn it, meditate on it, chew it over, and bring our lives under its power and its authority. God's word sets the agenda. But it's not just me and my Bible alone in a room. Notice how David talks about God's word in community. He brings his plans to the person who's there who happens to be Nathan. And note that Nathan is a spiritual leader, a mature believer. Now, I've said it before, but let me say it again. It amazes me when Christians make big life decisions and then they talk about, they've, they say they've prayed about it or they've, they've mentioned it to a few friends, 
Oh, they say they've had some, they feel God has guided them in some speculative way, but they haven't really taken care to assess those decisions in light of biblical wisdom. Nor have they submitted the decisions to somebody in spiritual authority in the church. For example, a life group leader or a pastor or a more mature older Christian. Now, I'll give you some examples. Obviously, we don't have to bring everything to each other, like what color shepherd's costume are we going to wear today? But what about where you're going to live? That's a pretty big decision, isn't it, in life? Where you're going to live is going to affect your involvement in church community, to some extent your growth in godliness. But we make decisions about where we're going to live without checking, without thinking it through under the light of God's word. What about a career change, a move into a professional, taking on another job? Something that will influence your life big time and those around you. What about whether to pursue a relationship uh, with somebody with a view to marriage? Now our culture says it's all down to you, right? You're an individual, an independent thinker. But actually the Bible would say, no, you're part of a community. And the community is under God's word. So we should make these big decisions together. This is not about control, friends. It's about wisdom. And it's about letting God set the agenda in our lives. David is about to discover that God's plan far exceeds his wildest imagination and dreams. Compared to what God has in mind, David's little cedar temple is like an Ikea shed in the back garden. Because we're going to move on to the second point here, God's promise. God's promise. Have a look at what God says in verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. John Woodhouse is a, a, a Bible teacher and an Old Testament scholar. He's written two enormous books on First and Second Samuel, and he writes something very powerful about this section. He says that the Bible's message is radical and powerful. And I want to just share a bit of what he says, because I found it amazing. He says the Bible's message is not simply that God exists, or that God is the creator of all that is, although it does teach that. The Bible's message is more than just an account of God's purposes and particular actions in history, guiding Israel in the Old Testament and sending Jesus in the New Testament, although the Bible does teach that. In fact, Woodhouse says, you could know your Bible really well and be familiar with its contents, and still have missed the heart of what it teaches. You could miss the heart of the Bible's message and be mistaken in your response to God. You can miss the wood for the trees. And those of us who are brought up in Christian homes are sometimes more susceptible to this, because we've got a head full of facts, but we haven't grasped the heart of what the Bible is all about. So what is that? It's this. God has promised. 
God has promised. This is the golden thread that holds the whole Bible together. The central message that makes sense of all the little details. God has promised. And so faith isn't just believing the information that the Bible gives us. Faith is believing God's promise and resting your life on it, betting your life that God will keep his word. Unless we see that everything in the Bible is related to God's promises, we miss the point. But once we believe the promise, the Bible comes to life because we read and listen to grow in our knowledge of God who promises. Our faith, our hope, our love are nourished by God's promise, which comes to us in the words of the pages of this book, breathed to us by God's own Holy Spirit. So let me ask, do you believe God's promise? This is what he's promised. God has promised to bless his people, and so you can trust him. God's promised to bless his people, and so you can trust him. And the Bible is a record from beginning to end of God making and keeping promises no matter what. And in verses 8 to 11 that I just read, there are some words that are quite weighty because these words are actually echoes of promises that were made many years before David. They were made originally to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, some two and a half thousand years before Jesus came. Then they were repeated to Israel, the people of God in the wilderness, some three or four hundred years before David. And now God repeats these echoes of promises to David. And he says, I will keep my word. And there are four elements to this promise. A great name, a great home, safety and rest. A name, a home, safety and rest. I'll just go through those quickly. Verses 8 and 9, a great name. David, God says, everything you have came from me. I'm the one that, that brought you to preeminence. You know, remember you were a shepherd boy? In fact, you were the eighth son. And the eighth son in the ancient world was just a complete nobody. By the time the inheritance comes around, he's not going to get anything. The first son gets a double portion. The eighth son gets nada. He wasn't even brought in from the field when Samuel came to anoint the new king. And yet God chose him and made him who he was and steered him through many trials and de defeated all his enemies. God did it. An absolute nobody. And yet God promises, I will give you a great name, David, much greater than the one you have at the moment. Because David will never be forgotten through the whole of human history. And here we are in 2019 talking about the life of David. There's a promise that's been kept. Secondly, a home. God promised a place. He says, I will plant them there. That speaks of permanence, rootedness, fruitfulness. Genesis 12 again, God commanded Abraham, get up and go to the place I will show you. And Abraham went west, not knowing where he was going. And God promised again and again through Genesis and through the pages of the Old Testament that he would give a land, a promised land to his people to be their home. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land where everyone would sit under their own vine and fig tree. A good home. The kind of home we all want. And God says, I'm going to keep that promise, but I'm going to do it in ways that are far bigger than you can possibly imagine, David. Trust me. The third echo is that of safety. God had promised Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you, I will curse. I will protect you. 
David is promised violence, safety from violence and oppression and wickedness. It's hard for us to imagine the brutality of the ancient world. We live fairly uh, comfortable lives here in the West. People were vulnerable, constantly vulnerable. God promises protection. And fourthly, rest. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, isn't that the same as safety? No, there's more. Because there's an added dimension. If we think back to the, the, the account of how God created the world in six days, and what did he do on the seventh? He rested from all the work he had done. God actively enjoyed his creation. And the seventh day in, in Genesis 1 and 2 is the only day that doesn't have an ending, a, a night and a morning. In other words, God's rest on the Sabbath day is eternal. He rests forever at peace. And humanity were invited into that rest, but we rejected it. Adam and Eve chose their own path. And as a result, were cursed with restlessness and conflict in their marriage, in society, in their work, in childbearing, even in the, uh, the planet itself. Our lives are weary, aren't they? <laughs> Every time I read those words uh, at the beginning of the service, to all who are weary and need rest, I just feel like taking a deep sigh afterward. <sighs> We're weary. How we want to enjoy rest. And God promises that he will give it. Now the really amazing thing about this section here is that God is repeating his promises and restating them to a new leader. They were given to Abraham. They were given to Israel. Now they focus in on David. But this is like a funnel. If you can imagine something that starts broad and then narrows in. Till in the end it's like an arrow point that's just pointing at this one guy, David. And God is saying, David, I'm going to keep my promises. I will bless my people. You can trust me. But notice all the language is future tense. I will do this. I will do that. David thought he'd arrived. He thought he could build a house for God and it was all done. But God has bigger ideas. This is just a partial fulfillment. Even David has to trust God's word for the future. God says, no, you won't build a house for me. We haven't arrived yet. The best is yet to come. God is saying, my work in this world is nowhere near finished. My plan to rescue a people and bless them with unimaginable love and goodness has actually only just started. Now, do you believe this? That God wants to bless you, that he will keep his promise, that you can trust him? You know, you need this ballast in the ship of your life. There's an old hymn I used to sing when I was growing up. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? And the chorus of the hymn says this. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. Amen. That is the anchor that you, you sink your soul into, is the Saviour's love, the love of Jesus Christ revealed for you most fully at his cross. God keeps his promises. So are you building your life now on his word, submitting your projects and plans to him, 
and looking forward to the future, which he will keep. God's promises are fundamentally future-focused. Our projects, God's promise. Thirdly, finally, the great privilege. The biggest surprise in the passage is yet to come. Here it is. Let's pick up from verse 11. Halfway through, God says this solemn thing again. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. The biggest surprise of all is that the chapter begins with David wanting to build a house for God. And God says, no, I want to build a house for you. I want to build a house for you, David. Now, God is not overly impressed with cedar planks and bricks and mortar. God means a dynasty, a future, a line of descent of kings that will come from him. God declares it again. He says, this promise is going to outlive you, David. It's not linked to your earthly life, which is a common problem with kings and queens, isn't it? Even the great ones die, and then there's more uncertainty and chaos. No, no, God says, it will, it will come in the future. I'll raise up your offspring and establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, short term, this was fulfilled by David's son, Solomon. Solomon, one of the, perhaps the wisest person who ever lived. God's word was fulfilled through Solomon. Solomon did build a beautiful temple. But the promises go even further. Have a look at verse 13. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Something here is going on that is beyond even David's son and maybe the one after that. It's a promise of a kingdom that will last forever. It will never end. A kingdom of justice and of peace and of abundance and prosperity. A safe place, a kingdom where God's promises are fulfilled for the whole of the world. And in verses 14 and 15, we read about what God will do. Even when the, the kings that followed from David failed, God disciplined them as sons, but he didn't reject them. And verse 16 climaxes, this kingdom will be established forever. Now, David himself in later years thought long and hard about these promises. And he realized that they were even more powerful and extensive than he'd first thought. How do we know? Because he wrote Psalm 2. And Psalm 110, if you want to read those Psalms in your devotionals this week, you will see the extent to which David realized God was claiming the whole world through his son, his king. Where do these promises ultimately land? They land in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, my wife recently took a trip with her friend, Ali Collins to Hull they drove to Hull because Melissa wanted to look at a bridge I like bridges I don't know if I'd go to Hull to see one uh, there's a lovely one in Bristol not knocking Hull by the way uh, the, 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 the Clifton suspension bridge it was designed by a great British engineer um, Brunel and uh, it's a wonderful bridge because it spans this huge open stretch of uh, a kind of chasm where the river is down. And, and it's a suspension bridge. It has these wonderful towers at the side and these, these um, uh, columns coming down. And it's, it's, the engineering of it is absolutely glorious. And people love different bridges. 
what we see in this section is a bridge in the Bible. And it's a bridge that joins on one side Abraham and God's promises, and on the other side Jesus and God's fulfillment. And David is in the middle, and he's the suspension bridge through which God is going to drive all these promises. David is the, is the bridge. How do we get from Genesis chapter 12? Abraham, through you, every family on earth will be blessed to Jesus being born in a stable, as we're going to think about in the next few weeks. The answer is that Jesus is the promised king. He is the one who will bring in God's kingdom. And so it's very important, as we read the Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke, that they establish the family tree of Jesus. And do you know what? Jesus Christ was descended from David on both his mother Mary's side and on his adopted father Joseph's side. Jesus is the descendant of David. And this is what the New Testament writers are talking about when they say, you are the son of God. Remember the great turning point in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Well, some people say you're Elijah, some say John the Baptist. Who do you say I am? Jesus says, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what he means by that isn't that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, which he is. He means you are the promised king, the one who was going to come that God promised to David all those hundreds of years ago. You see, when those words come that you are the son, people are saying, ah, the king has come at last. The one who's going to put everything right. The one who's going to bring in God's kingdom. Now, there's an amazing element here of grace to David. Kings in the ancient world usually built a temple for their gods as a kind of a deal. You know, uh, I'll build a temple for you if you'll give me success over my enemies. It's a quid pro quo relationship. But what we find here is that our relationship to God is completely different. God doesn't even want us to build him a temple. God gives the riches to David. All the status, all the victories, all the glory that came to King David, it was all a gift, sheer grace, an extraordinary privilege. And that is the same for you, Christian friend, brother or sister here today. Christ's riches are your riches. The thing that matters now is not your past and your record, but Christ's past and Christ's record freely given to you. The status of being a child of God is given to you. I think we're going to sing in a minute. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. It's a gift. The victory over our biggest enemies of sin and death, the things that kept us away from God and from life and flourishing, that victory is won by Jesus and is given to you. You are no longer a slave to sin, but a servant of God. And in Christ, we are all kings and priests like David. And glory? Glory is coming. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who loved him. So Christian believers are the most privileged people in the world. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. 
So will you let that spiritual reality change you this week? Or will you continue to feel like a second-class citizen? David wanted to build a house for God's name. God said, that's not for you to do. I will build a house for you. What a privilege. Just in closing, let me think about some applications of this. I'm sure you can think about more. And if you're plugged into a midweek group, a life group, we'll be talking more and thinking about how this works out in everyday life. First question, do you realize how big God's future is? How big it's going to be? And is it starting to set your agenda now in your life? Let me ask it a different way. Are there any higher goals that you could have than to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness right now? In light of where history is heading, don't you think that your career, your family, your relationship, your bank balance are fairly small goals? Jesus said, seek my kingdom and righteousness first. All these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about them. Seek God's kingdom. Secondly, do you relate to Jesus primarily as king? Now, the reason I say this is we're, we live in a democracy. We don't have kings. We have a queen, but it's not, it's not the same. The real power is held by parliament. That was something that happened over many years in this country. And so we're not used to sovereignty, an absolute sovereign, somebody who really is in charge and whom we have to serve. Do you relate to Jesus as your king? Because that's what he says he is. Example, what do you do when you find that Jesus is asking you to do something that you don't want to do? Do you think it's optional? It isn't. If Jesus says, I want you to forgive that person, you've got to forgive them. You don't have a choice in it. You don't make excuses when the king tells you. Do you relate to Jesus as king? And finally, I want to just share something that blew my mind this week as I was reading this passage. David wanted to build a house for God's name. God said, no, I'm going to build a house for your name, a dynasty for you. And in the future, your descendant will build a house for my name. And on one level, Solomon fulfilled that. But here's the thing. If Jesus is the greater king, the one that fulfills this promise ultimately, what is the house that he is building for his name? What is the house that Jesus is building for God's name? What is the place that God, the holy God, is going to dwell? What is it? It's the church. <laughs> it's the church. That is the bride of Christ, the dwelling place of the living God, the sanctuary, the temple. We don't need a temple anymore because we are, we are the church. God dwells within us. Jesus is building his church brick by brick. You are a living stone, the New Testament says. Wow, the church. So if the church is the house for God's name, how do we relate to her? Friends, are you dating the church which Jesus intends to marry? Can the church be dropped when a better offer comes up? Is coming together for gathered worship on Sunday a priority? 
Is plugging into community life midweek a priority? And you know, this is not just about turning up. There are some churches in this city, I know one that's not far from here, where a lot of people will go because they have to get their card stamped to show that they went to church a certain number of times so that they can get their kids into a nice Church of England school. So there is a church not all that far from here whose congregation is probably doubled by people who want their kids in the school. You know, they, they fill in the card. Actually, they all try and go out to the creche before the sermon starts. That is not real church growth. It's just turning up. So it's not just about being here. It's about giving yourself to people, isn't it? Really sharing life. And what do you do when the church hurts you? I didn't say if the church hurts you. I said when. Because it will. And one of our members, Andrew, who is he's leading the band today, he oversees music at the church. We're reading a book together called The Worship Pastor by Zach Hicks, a tremendous book. And Zach Hicks talks about somebody who is a church lover. A church lover passionately loves and believes in the church. A church lover zealously commits to the church's vision and values. A church lover humbly submits to the church's God-ordained leadership. A church lover cultivates compassion for everyone in the flock, not just a few. But listen to this. A church lover willingly enters into the church's wounding nature. He says, as worship leaders, we're always tempted to wander into bitterness, to cope with the perpetual pain that the church inflicts on us. The criticisms are endless, from sound levels to song selection, from intolerable theology to inappropriate outfits. Our church is always wounding us. Now, I didn't notice any of our musicians this morning wearing inappropriate outfits, and I thought the theology was pretty good too. But here's the point he's making. Our church is always wounding us. And that doesn't just go for musicians, people who do things up front. Church will wound you. Church will hurt you. We will let you down, we'll disappoint you. We're very fragile. We're vulnerable. The best of us is a work in progress. Amen? So what will you do when the church hurts you? Will you continue to love her, knowing that she, however imperfect, is the house for God's name that King Jesus is building? And will you bring your life, your projects, your plans, your hopes into the church and build it together. Let's pray.